TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Randy J. Hunt about his career leading up to his current job as the creative director of Etsy, the e-commerce community that sells handmade, vintage, and craft items. Hunt argues that designers should be able to build what they design. The end result is better, and I believe that it creates more empathy and better communication with the other people you have to work with. Here's Debbie Millman. Randy J. Hunt is the creative director of Etsy, the online marketplace. He's also a guy who loves words. So he got pretty excited recently when he discovered that Etsy was a clue in the Washington Post crossword, right there at 66 across. If only, he said, the clue didn't limit us to crafts. For the record, Etsy is an online marketplace for art, vintage, jewelry, furniture, and clothes. As creative director, Randy does everything from telling the Etsy story to designing user experiences. Randy J. Hunt, welcome to Design Matters. Hello. So, Randy, is it true that you unknowingly take on the accent of people that you're talking to? Uh... It is embarrassingly true. <laughs> so if I started talking like that, you'd start talking like that too. Maybe. That that might that might happen. <laughs> so, it's most glaringly obvious when I get in the back of a cab and my <laughs> my girlfriend will like elbow me and she'll be like, Stop doing that. So why do you think you do it? I have no idea. Is this like enormous capacity for empathy? Oh I would like to think so. That's a nice way of saying it, but I I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm protecting myself or something. Like, I want to feel familiar to the other person. I have no idea. So what is the most unusual accent you've ever taken on? Oh, goodness. Well, I, I clearly remember walking down the sidewalk in Soho one day, and there's a bunch of Japanese tourists. And I, it had been years since I'd been in Japan, but when I was there, I remember the person who I was with, like, complimenting me on how well I was, like, saying these words. 
And I caught myself walking behind these people, just saying out loud over and over again, Arigato gozaimasu, Arigato gozaimasu. And what does that mean? It means thank you very much. Well, they probably thought it was nice. Um, well, they probably thought I was actually not nearly as good as the other person did. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm wondering if that this ability to take on accents of people has something to do with you being born and raised in Florida and then moving to North Carolina and then moving to Virginia. And I was wondering if all those moves gave you the ability to take on different different dialects. Maybe, maybe. Perhaps what's interesting is like New York is so diverse that diversity is the norm. And sort of where I grew up in Florida is this strange mix of like former New Yorkers, like Florida rednecks, and then a huge like Cuban and Puerto Rican population. And these are just like these three strong groups that have very distinctly different cultures. Well, I find it somewhat interesting and also enjoyable that you are not taking on a really strong New York accent, or should I say New York (laughs) accent? (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about your background. You have had a number of different jobs. Mm. I understand that you did telephone tech support for an ISP, and that back when CDs were still awesome, your words, not mine, you recorded a handful of albums and opened and closed a record label that never made any money. Yes. So I need to know about these things. First, tell us about the telephone tech support. Uh, Not unlike a lot of other things. And I learned this about myself looking backwards, certainly. I just decided I wanted to do something and then did it. So you had an aspiration to do telephone tech support? No, but I was like, oh, this seems like the coolest thing around. Somehow in my mind, the internet was awesome. What year was this? Oh, gosh. Uh, 1996. Cellular Um, phones or landline phones? These were landline phones. No, people came in and paid for their internet service with checks, which was (laughs) remarkable. Um, No, this this company, in fact, the name of it, BitStorm, I clearly remember. So, I mean, so perfect for the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Perfect. Uh, And they were like the coolest thing in my world other than music. Like, the internet was awesome. And I was like, I want to work for those guys. Like, if I have to have a high school job, it's going to be there. So what does telephone tech support mean back in 1997? Uh, You know, it was everything from like sort of very, very legitimate sort of like, uh, you know, I don't understand how this thing works about your service and I need some help doing it to the the people who literally didn't have their computer monitor turned on. Um, So figuring out how to like suss that out of a situation and navigate a conversation with people who are sometimes like irate or just confused or don't even speak your language very well. It was a really interesting learning experience because I was I was in high school. I was young. Wow. Yeah. So you were also the owner of a record label. And you recorded a handful of albums yeah. as the owner of the record label. So, like, for who? Yeah, like The Clash yeah. and yeah. David Bowie? Yes, and... exactly. No. <laughs> um, no, this actually started. So as a coworker of mine at this... Telephone tech. You got it. Yeah. Uh, we were both in high school, and, you know, basically our only expense was buying gas for our cars, right? And yet we were in these jobs that actually, like, paid pretty well at the time, right? So we we were like, we love rock and roll. We're going to take, like, all of our extra money and put out records for bands we like, which was not that unheard of then. And so we started, like many small labels did, with a compilation record. And this was sort of our inroad because we didn't have to record anything. We just sort of, like, paid licensing or some people just give us stuff to use. So we put, like, 20 different tracks on a CD. And because How did you find the artists? There were just people we liked. So we, you just called them up? And said, hey, I'm putting was, together a compilation album. Was, Want to be on it? It was a mix, yeah. Uh, in some cases, they were labels we went directly to, like smallish labels. And we said, you know, 
you've got this band we'd like to have on this thing. Can we do it? Other times we go straight to the bands. It depends it depend on the scale. Even then, it's funny. Now I think about it. We really tried to compose this thing as an interesting mix of stuff. So there's bands who were sort of people we knew from two towns over who had like 20 people that would come to their show. And it's people with like a real sort of legitimate following. Like who? I mean, at the time, these are the bands. There's a band called J Church. They were this like really influential kind of like Bay Area punk band. Um, they were not popular in the pop music sense but tons of people love them they're like really really influential so it's sort of getting people like that because we felt like that would sort of lift the project along you know you could get their audience to pay attention to it then maybe you can sort of make it work out for everybody and can we find any of these cds anywhere online now to be able to buy or in the itunes store no not in the itunes store you know i think the label is called wendell records and i think if it's still around there was a website called interpunk Ah. There was like this e-commerce site for just like band merch and CDs and stuff. And they probably have the only remaining inventory that anyone can buy. Well, I I have a feeling that some listeners are going to go investigate that. So telephone tech support to record label impresario to designer. Mm. How did that journey happen? I was always kind of designing and didn't realize I was designing. So really, at a, at a fairly young age, I started like making stuff for the internet. So you're really a digital native. Yeah, I think it was. This is here's a funny story. Uh, fifth grade science fair, I managed to build a web page as a science fair project, which has nothing to do with the scientific process whatsoever. No controls, no experiments, no in it. No hypothesis or conclusion. No cardboard stand you put up at the thing, and yet everybody loved it because they'd never seen. This, like, 12-year-old kid do this. So I've been doing things like that for a long time. So was there a conscious decision, though, to become a designer? There was. It was actually when I went to college. I went to actually study, like, sound design. What I wanted to do was make software instruments, plugins for audio recording software and things like that. Uh, I felt like that would be a way to sort of be creative and be professional and relate to my interests, right? Um, in the process of doing that, I had to take all these, like, required art classes, right? and I just fell in love with, like, printmaking and stuff. And then I just started to get my kicks almost purely through design and stopped really making music. And that's when I was like, I just, well, this seems like it. Like, clearly there are people doing this professionally, and I really enjoy it. It all sort of added up. I read that if you weren't a designer, you'd be a poet. Well, I've learned over time that I have a real love for words and language. And my favorite design, and I think when I do my best design many times, is often language-based with, you know, maybe some very clever typography or some tasteful typography or something like that that is appropriate to that content but it's often when i've when i've written content and there's a real sort of designfulness to the choice of words and so that's why if i could you know you say if you weren't this would you be that you imagine this idealized yes ideal state i feel like a lot of designers say they wish they were architects or something and in my world it's almost like the other extreme where can I go to this pure place of just wordplay? I mean, that sounds like poetry to me. Well, it's interesting because in the same interview that I read about you declaring that if you weren't a designer, you would be a poet, you stated that this would mean that you'd be very poor mm-hmm. and you'd be designing phrases, sentences, yeah. reading, <laughs> and listening experiences all day long. And that's the first time I've ever heard poetry being described as designing phrases, sentences, <laughs> reading, and listening experiences. Yeah. And I thought, well, deep Dan, he still really wants to be a designer. <laughs> Maybe that's true. Maybe. So now you're living in New York, where you've, uh, another description that, that you've provided, where you've described yourself as having signed up to fight the good fight in the shadow of big banks and giant media companies. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really? Well, 
I mean, that wasn't why I came here or anything like that. But it, no, but it, I think it, I, I do see it, you doing this. It ends up being a sort of apt description for the situation yes. I've end up, yes. ended up in. Uh, I've always liked the idea of the sort of uh, underdog character or something. I think many of us sort of do. I don't, it's funny. I don't know that I identify with them like, oh, I'm, that's always me. Um, there's more to gain. It's like a process of like working really hard to change something for the better, I think, is the sort of the underdog's position. If I'm going to work hard on something, I want it to be like this improvement, you know? So do you feel, though, that a good part of your approach to design or your philosophy as a designer is in that good fight in the shadow of big banks and giant media companies? As mm. I was looking over the sort of trajectory of your career, I saw that social justice seems to mean mm. quite a lot to you in everything that you've done. Yeah, yeah. I think it's not, you know, me as a designer, but just me as a person. You know, I happen to be a designer. But, like, as a human being, I think we do all actually care about these things, like better education for most people and fairness and equality. I think we act on them to different degrees, and we try to align our professional work with those things at different degrees. It seems to me to be a natural sort of human, like, impulse. It's part of being human to desire this for people, I hope. I want to say that I think that that's true, but I think that given the behavior of so many people in the world today working in the shadow of big banks and giant media companies, yeah. that they might feel that that wasn't the case. But going back to the question about mm. being an underdog, yeah. it's so interesting because as I was looking again at your career and you graduated from SVA in 2003 and after you graduated school, you went to work for Milton Glaser and number 17. So how do you go about getting a job with them? What for the, for the listeners out there that are looking at Randy J Hunt's career and thinking, "Wow, he's really amazing. He's really lucky. How did he manage to do that so quickly?" Well, quite simply, I think they're both directly involved with um SVA where I went to graduate school. So this was really where I had access to people, right? Okay. Uh, so um I know a lot of people that have gone to SVA yeah. and have not come out working for Milton Glaser and number 17. Sure, what sure. advice would you give to oh, young goodness. designers coming out of school who want to work for Milton sure, Glaser? Sure. I think uh, oh goodness. Milton's going to kill me. <laughs> I wish that I had some really awesome answer. I mean, what I did is I sent an email to his studio manager at the time and I said um Hey, I'm Randy. I was in Milton's class at SVA. Um, you know, I'm looking at different, like, opportunities. I'm wondering if I could come in for the summer. You know, would I be able to come in and, like, meet with somebody, show you my work? And a couple emails back and forth, just sort of scheduling something. I actually had no idea if I was going to talk to Milton or someone else. I got there that day, and I had my laptop with my same portfolio that I showed everyone else, you know. Milton was there, and he invited me into the conference room, and we talked for maybe 10 minutes or so. And then he said, uh, yeah, well, sure, we'll, uh, we'll see you soon. And he patted me on the back and... I'm not trying to make it sound sort of effortless or anything like that, but I didn't, there wasn't any sort of special trick or anything. I mean, it feels very lucky. I don't, I don't say this as, as if everyone always has that same opportunity or something, but I don't necessarily feel like there's anything in that one moment that I, you know, I sort of said just the right thing or you know, really had this like killer promotional thing that I mailed them in this fancy box or anything like that, even though I love stuff like that personally. I think it's awesome. Um, I don't know. I think I was just sort of be, being myself and had my work to show and talk, you know, sincerely about it and show willingness to work hard, I think. One of the ways in which you described what you got from your SVA education was the notion that designer and entrepreneur can fit into the same sentence. And I'm wondering if that had any influence in your approach to finding work or starting your own career. 
Yeah, absolutely. I love the idea of starting and running things, right? That's sort of where the record label came from. When I'd worked in a small design studio, I had as much fun sort of helping grow the studio, figuring out ways to help manage it as I did in doing the design work. So I always liked sort of like running things, helping things happen. I think what happened, among other things, at SVA is I saw other people who had actually done this in ways that were more sort of packaged up and intentional. What do you um, mean? I mean, at the time, like the the Boim partners, um, Lorene taught in the program, and they very, they, they did product design, you know, they did sort of pure, almost like industrial design, but they would conceive of their own products, sort of name them, brand them, package them, shop them around, like find manufacturing, get distribution, like they would do all of this. And it started with a sort of design idea or from like the designer's point of view. And I realized through sort of being um, Milton Glaser studio, having him as an instructor and just really having more exposure to his work, realized that he was at the center of the genesis of many things that weren't just design. So there's that piece of DNA. Uh, Myra Kalman as well was in the program, Emin Co. And then now her sort of individually or personally has done many things that were sort of products and, and business ideas that sort of emerge out of like a design process or a design idea. So when did you start Supermarket? That was your curated design marketplace. Yeah. And why did you start Supermarket? So it was 2007 we started it. We maybe even started working on it in 2006. When something. you say we? Um, so myself and the co-founder, his name is Ryan Dusing, um, awesome guy. And really... We started it because he had a business problem. He had a, a business that had bought product wholesale and sold it retail. And uh, they did this all e-commerce. So it was all mail order e-commerce, right? Um, they're in Brooklyn. They're in the New York area. Real estate was expensive. So you physically hold products, right? When you're doing things like that, the more you buy at once, the cheaper they are per unit. So it's to your advantage to buy as much as possible if you believe you can sell them. But... Their real advantage, like what they did really well, was have good taste. Mm. They picked great products often before they sort of hit. They picked them because they were interested in the products themselves or they were supporting the smaller sort of like independent designers who had these products to sell. And they did a good job of sort of pushing that stuff to the right like media outlets and things at the right moments, getting good press for people and things like that. And they were trying to grow. They were like, man, we know we could sell this chair. We know people would buy this chair. We cannot warehouse 300 chairs right now until they actually sell. Like, it's just not physically possible. So how can we almost, like, dematerialize the business? So we sort of went into business together to do this. And what we did was basically build a software product that allowed us to sort of dematerialize the business and then built a brand idea around it and curated items. Um, Ryan did most of the curation. He's really good taste. But the real point of view, and it actually... I think helped us out from a differentiation standpoint. We started to skew more mail. So we basically made the store we wanted to shop in ourselves. So this is the perspective of like two guys who like design stuff. That seems to have led you directly into a place where it would seem absolutely appropriate and perfect for you then to go to Etsy. Yep. I mean, there's a very, very natural connection there um, between the some of the mechanics of the business, um, the needs from a person in sort of a design, communication, brand uh, standpoint. Um, also, I, and to me, sort of most importantly, the more motivating factors, which are in helping independent creative people make a living doing what they love, um, basically take a whole bunch of creative people and introduce like a marketplace to them. 
So there are two more positions that you've had that I want to talk to you about before we get to Etsy. And the first is Citizen Scholar. So Citizen Scholar was your business prior to coming to Etsy. So talk about what Citizen Scholar was and still is because it still seems to be very much alive online. Mm -hmm. And it is now, I guess, an an aggregate of all of your writing, all of the design work that you've done. And then I also want to talk a little bit about some of the work that you did with Josh Silverman. So Citizen Scholar was the design studio. Um, At least that's how I framed it. When Citizen Scholar started, I quit the other studio I was working at in Florida. This was before I came to New York. Um, I had almost no money. And no clients. (laughs) What I figured was very little to lose. And so it started in my bedroom doing client service projects. But from the get-go, I wanted to set a goal for myself, sort of set a standard. Like here is the nature of work I aspire to. And here's a sort of conceptual framework in which to attempt to have a design business. And what was that framework? It was. I mean, I was very specifically chosen the Inc. in the name of Citizen Scholar. It's Citizen Scholar Inc. And I think it's these Ah, three important components. Okay. Right. So there's this sense of sort of citizenship, this idea of positive engagement sort of with the world, like overtly positive, not like this does no harm, but like we want to set out to do good. Um, Scholar and this idea of scholarship. I've always loved design as an academic discipline and as an opportunity to learn. Like the way that I learn the most is usually through designing. And then Inc., because it's a business. Like, we're not denying that it's a business. So it's like, how do you have work that sort of touches on those three points? How do you find clients or projects and try to build a sort of professional life that touches on those distinct things? Then do it as a proper business that can sustain itself. Sounds like you're talking about Etsy. <laughs> it does. But before does. we get to this, before we get there, I just have to ask you about Josh Silverman's title for you as, I believe, the Minister of Relevance at Schwa Design. So tell me about what the Minister of Relevance is, does, Uh, did. Yeah. There was a sort of naming mechanism where everyone had a sort of ministry in in the same way that you might have in a a government institution or something, right? Ministry of Education, Ministry of whatever. And it was always this sort of collaborative process between the designers and then Josh, who runs the studio, sort of what that would be. And I felt like, certainly still feel like, um, a design answer that, considers its larger context that is most relevant to the audience will be most likely to succeed. But relevance may not be what we think of as designers, like our immediate our immediate thought about good design. Right? Now, when you say good design, do you mean design for good or design that oh, is good? I mean design that is good, like well-executed or okay. good aesthetics or whatever the thing might be. Um, that and the relevance and how relevant that is to its audience, may there may be tension or conflict there. Something that designers may say at an aesthetic level or at a quality level is bad may actually be quite relevant or appropriate to an audience. And oh, I like that yeah. tension. But, rel- I mean, I think there is a really interesting tension that can sometimes be a bit more turbulent when talking about design that is targeted to a mass audience versus design that is curated for an audience that might be looking at supermarket, for example, your your online opportunity for people. Um, it's really subjective. How do you determine that sweet spot of relevance for any audience? I mean, now, these mm-hmm. days, I yeah. think we do it. I can speak specifically about Etsy. So sure. when, when you're working in a with this web product, right, um, 
you have a lot more tools and feedback at your disposal, and that's actually interesting. We can really test things. We can test functional things. We can test communication things. You can test style things and see. You can make some guesses about what they'll do, and then you can get feedback. You can get very sort of quantitative feedback. You can also get qualitative feedback if you want. So that's one way. You actually try some stuff. It's so a sort of co-creation in many ways. And get, and get, and get ways. a gauge on if it's relevant. Mm-hmm. Another thing, I believe, and this is where it gets dangerous, I think, was sort of things that touch a very, very wide and much more diverse set of people, which Etsy does. It's much more sort of wider than my own taste or something. But it's more familiar to me. So it's not communicating as much with the unknown. And so I think you can make some – you can lean in the direction of relevance because you can still use intuition – I'm part of that same community, right? Like the Etsy community, the very diverse, is one that I'm very sincerely in my lifestyle and my creative choices and whatever, a, a, a part of, you know. We're not all the same by any means. It's a very, very diverse set of people. And yet there are some motivations that sort of bring people together. And so you kind of lean into those. And you can more intuitively sort of connect with something that's probably relevant as opposed to me trying to put on, put on a hat to maybe empathize with an audience that is just not my not an audience I'm familiar with. You know, it'd be very difficult for me to, uh, I think, communicate well the, I'm going to make some silly example here, but, uh, you know, the reason you might want to purchase this, you know, luxury yacht. Like, there, there are ways to do that. Well, I've, I've just never had that experience myself and I've never been on one. You know, it's just much more difficult to sort of imagine what, what how do you really tell that story or understand the person's motivations of the other side? Um, so I think with Etsy, it's, easier, though not easy, to be relevant to the audience because I'm a part of the audience, too. So there you are. You're working at Citizen Scholar, Inc., also curating Supermarket. And then you get a call one day from Etsy, like, hey, Randy, oh, s- what you doing? Sort of. So uh, how did it happen? How did you get the creative director job at Etsy? Well, it grew into the creative director job. Okay, so um, you started as? As like an interaction designer. So myself and Ryan, who had started Supermarket, we were sort of talking to Etsy. And this is the first time I've ever been in, in conversations where you'd say things like talking in quotes, um, <laughs> air, air quotes on the radio. Uh, and this is where I learned very quickly that these sorts of conversations are all sorts of ambiguous. Hey, maybe we should uh, do a project together. Uh, maybe we should do something else. Maybe there should be some formal thing. Does this involve a contract? Is this a handshake? Is this – oh, wait. Maybe we're talking about actually like us being a part of what you're doing or maybe not. Or uh, Let's talk in a few months. We're busy working on our business right now. You know, a lot of this sort of thing. And ultimately what happened is we just didn't move forward with any any of the many possibilities that had been discussed. And Ryan and I continued doing things. And then a, and then a moment came for me where I wanted to explore explore something um, bigger, I think. The idea of an even larger audience and a larger challenge was very, very intriguing to me. And there were very few things that immediately struck me as uh, natural fits. Etsy always felt like a natural fit to me, even from the, you know, just from the outside. It was somewhat serendipitous, but around that same time, Etsy's founder, Rob Kalin, came back as the CEO of the company, and he reached out to me directly and asked me if I'd like to join Etsy. When had you known out. him before? No. So he just, he had heard of you and yeah. decided to reach out and yeah. bring you and, on board. And so that that was really the beginning of then what's been like a very um, organic, sort of like natural growth process in some way from doing sort of almost pure, what we call now product design at Etsy, but sort of web, web product design to overseeing the sort of overall user experience with 
kind of the Etsy brand, like with every touch point, whether that be in the web product or in other things. Had you ever sold anything on Etsy before you started working at Etsy? I had, but not in a legitimate way. So I actually had... In an illegitimate way? I did not list something on Etsy that I had created and then sell it to someone else in the marketplace. Um, In doing my own version of market research, I like created an Etsy shop and had people purchase from me. So I like understand the mechanics of it. Um, And this was when you were curating for a supermarket. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we did it with lots of software. And I still do that today. Not under my username, so you can't find me. <laughs> and so so were there actual real products that you were selling, or they were all sort of uh, imaginary they, products? Uh, they appeared like real products. I mean, they were like real drawings and things like that, but I didn't ship them because it was just part of a Sort of an interesting project. conceptual exercise to sell imaginary products. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's interesting. So people, For imaginary money. <laughs> oh, people do, people do this on Etsy. Um, and so there's like a policy that basically says you have to sell like a real thing. And so people will sell things that include, you know, a certificate of authenticity or a some physical of happiness. thing. That you really, I, I want to buy a box of happiness yeah. from Etsy. So I found this description of what you do at Etsy, and I wanted to share it with you and have you elaborated on, on it a little bit. So okay. this is what you said about what you do at Etsy every day. I look at the end-to-end experience people have with Etsy, from the promotion you see at an event to the interface you use when you buy an item to the email you check on your phone when someone has sent you a message. I help a team of designers execute that all in a way that is true to our values, expresses the unique personality that is Etsy, and is, well, awesome. (laughs) In short, it's my job to make sure a good design happens. The secret, shh is getting a bunch of really talented people that enjoy each other together and making sure they have the tools, time, and information they need to do their best work. In some sense, I'm a design cheerleader with a critical eye. I think that's one of the best job descriptions I've ever read. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. So what is a typical day in the life of Randy J. Hunt at Etsy like doing all of those things? So the people management part and sort of team leadership part I try not to make discrete from other things, but rather sort of integrated. So I try to use every opportunity that would be a purely uh, maybe like design review opportunity to somehow also be like part of sort of leading or managing the team. I don't do this like by having some sort of checklist to make sure I've done both or something, but I always try to keep that in my mind so that the moment isn't just a feedback on something that someone is sharing but it's also feedback on maybe how best to make their case or communicate that thing to other people as they need to. And what would that thing be? Um, well, that thing could be, it could be a, you know, what did we ship today? A fold, we shipped a folded poster. This is an interesting one. Small quantity, a thousand pieces of this nice looking poster that will be inserted into a bag at the Pictoplasma sort of art illustration, uh, like character art animation conference in Berlin. Uh, we're sponsoring it. We've got some exhibition space there of all Etsy sellers. In this case, it's almost like a little gift. It's not really, it's not hard promotion or anything like that. Um, so one of our designers, you know, Jeremy Perez Cruz, um, awesome, awesome designer. Uh, he created this poster with some illustration that we've licensed from an Etsy seller. Um, you know, someone on our communications team wrote some copy. And what I did today was sort of give it that last few like once overs. And that was everything from, like, little design details, like, ah, that should be an end dash instead of a hyphen, like, the spacing right, like, sort of back up, like, uh, making sure you got all the, did we phrase the language right, we credit the seller, because we're really, like, it's very important that we sort of package up these things similarly, so it's always, like, shop name on Etsy, you know, it's like, sort of a, 
uh, a language um, branding. And I say, awesome, you all did a great job. Like, ship it, have fun. Like, this is totally cool. Um, 20 minutes later, I have a meeting with a product manager and a product designer. So he's doing sort of UI, design, visual design, UX, and a product. And we walked through the whole flow of a new experience that we're launching on Etsy. Um, flow I'd seen many times before, um, so they iterate on it uh, quite a lot. There's a couple of particular pain points where they'd gotten feedback from some people and they weren't sure how to deal with that feedback. Um, and this is for a new navigation through Etsy? Uh, or this in, in this case, is fine. I can't actually talk about this one. Um, and that's because oh. we sort of like package these things up to make um, – so that the release is fun and exciting. Right? Um, but a new set of features that you know, allow you to do some of that so that you haven't been able to do before. So we always look at flows. This is an important one. So even though we're looking at this one moment inside a longer experience, I always want to see everything from as far from the beginning of the experience to the end because it's part of this long flow. So I'm like, how did they start? Where, where did a person come from before they got to this thing? So we flow in there and they sort of get to their pain point in the middle of the process um, and talk about should we write different copy? Do we actually need different UI design? Is the feature idea itself confusing? You know, we sort of walk through some of the stuff and talk through it together. It's really sort of a collaborative process. And what I'm trying to bring there is a couple of things. Uh, consistency across the user experience, consistent quality of execution, and consistent personality. And decide where we can make some trade-offs. Maybe they're trying to get something out of the door fast and they're going to test it with an audience. So like, uh, maybe it's not quite as refined. That's okay. We know we're going to come back and refine it, so we're comfortable with that. And then the sort of tone of voice and the spirit of these things, making sure the sort of copy is right. Um, it's always a big one because I feel like copywriting is a very, very important part of interface design. And so it's always just sort of making sure that this all adds up. And then from time to time, it's really encouraging people to push things forward. Push what forward? Either the quality of design, maybe some aesthetic choices, maybe some organizational things, maybe parts of the sort of brand, like the visual brand language that we know we like want to integrate or move forward. Like this could be an opportunity to do it for many reasons. One, maybe you're well prepared for it, like you're a great designer and this is a good opportunity to try it. I know you can do it. Uh, the timeliness is right. When this thing makes its way out into the world, it might be the same time we're trying to do some other stuff with these things so we can make them sort of hit at once. Or maybe it's a sort of a low-risk thing so we could try some stuff out and see what happens. You know, sort of all this like orchestrating where I've, I've got kind of a bird's-eye view of all these different moving parts that add up to sort of the total experience. And so maybe we can make these sync up similarly. It's like, oh, I know we're sending out these illustrations in this email and we're doing this thing. We've got this other promotional item with these illustrations. Let's use the same illustration style here. So that if a person hears from us like four times this week, they're all like in lockstep, you know? It seems almost antithetical to the Etsy experience. But since you've used the word two or three times, I'm going to have to ask you about whether or not what you're really doing is overall managing the Etsy brand. It just feels like Etsy is almost an anti-brand. <laughs> exactly. No, I think that... Um, we collectively own the brand. Now, ownership and management are different. Making, but it's a, making something and managing it are different. If you don't manage your brand, then someone else will. And clearly, Absolutely. Etsy is extremely well managed. So these are very deliberate choices you're making about tone of voice, about visual yep. language, about everything. Yeah, yeah. One of the hardest things to do, I don't know that I've ever really done it, is make people love a brand. Mm. People already love Etsy. So that's not the challenge. Now, maintaining that, growing it, encouraging it, supporting it, respecting it. These are all challenges, but they're very different than sort of inventing it from nothing. The, the interesting challenge, I think, is sort of what you said, like Etsy is an anti-brand. So sometimes we'll make choices to just not design something. Like someone else on the staff or even some Etsy seller or something made something. And we might make a design choice about 
where do they put their attention in the call to action? Or like, what's the effectiveness of this thing? How are we going to distribute it? Which all become design questions, but we may not actually change or try to influence the actual sort of like the graphic design execution of this thing or something so much so that it feels natural, like who it came from. Other times we do exactly the opposite and we have a very sort of controlled and intentional choice about every single thing that goes out the door, especially if they're sort of trying to add up to a bigger picture or a moment or a total experience. And so it's very selective sort of which which ones of those things float on which side of that line. So how do you stay on brand, so to speak? How do you know when to make one choice versus another in those scenarios? Mm-hmm. Um, gut, some. Really? <laughs> I mean, uh, we have, that's the, that's the most honest answer. I mean, in fact, we're in, engaged in a process right now of sort of building what we call like a brand Bible for ourselves internally. Um, it's an interesting thing of not over-codifying. Now, what, what's in it is somebody asked me this question the other day. I had referenced uh, Marty Neumeyer. Marty uh, Neumeyer, the author of The Brand Gap. Yes, exactly. Zag. Yeah, and they brought up his idea of the sort of chief branding officer, this idea in like brand management, that there needs to be this person watching all of this. And they were like, who does that at Etsy? And I was like, oh, well, I do that. But Etsy's brand has a bigger affordance than I think some others does for variety, both in execution and tone and style. And so I treat it like we treat our web product. I think about the brand design as product design. We do a very, very iterative, continuously deploying, constantly changing like product development process. And I think about the brand stuff the same way. So sometimes I'll make a choice to identify something as not right, but right enough and let it go out the door because I know that the scope and scale of that is enough that we can kind of absorb what I feel like is just a little bit off, but it'll work out okay. And then other times try to really gate everything, like sort of watch it all as it goes out the door. So I, I watch it all, but it, I don't watch it all from a blocking standpoint. I actually believe that like design should never block. Like design should never keep something from going out the door. Wouldn't Steve Jobs be vehemently against that? Yes, So tell me why you feel that that's appropriate for Etsy. Not that everything that Steve Jobs says necessarily has to be true, but for the most part it has been. Yep. No, I agree. I mean, I think that um, much of what he has said or done that has been codified and we've seen the success over time is true. Um, I think he's made as many mistakes as anybody else. But I do agree in this particular case very strongly that design, I think, should stand in the way of something being released or being manufactured if it's not the best it can be. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we are working with something where we can almost always change everything over and over again. When we're, when we're actually printing something and sending it somewhere, we may make a thousand or two thousand of this thing. We're not rolling out millions of units of something, in which case the risk becomes much, much higher. Oh, so are you talking about more of a, um, C'est la vie attitude. If something's not exactly right, it's still yeah. okay because Etsy is not about perfection. Yes. And Etsy is not about that's right. it being something so rigid that... that is, that's correct. Okay. Now, if something was egregiously in conflict with our values or something like that would not be appropriate. So well, then, but then design is standing in the way if yeah, it is egregiously... It's, it's true. But I, th- I mean, there have been moments where something went out that should not have gone out in my point of view. Like, how did we possibly let this happen? I'd still tend towards letting it happen than not because we can fix it. I think if we were in a situation where we were unable to fix it, we'd be really stuck. And there are a few luxurious things here. So the a brand has a wider affordance, I think, for this variation. Um, when we're doing things that are difficult to fix, we're often doing them in smaller quantities. We're not doing like global distribution of things often locally. Everything is produced local 
fairly local. Uh, you know, we're doing something in Germany. We're using people like in Berlin to make these things. This is not, and now this last point is not at all to sound reckless or careless or not to think about the financial implications of things. But because these quantities are small, it's fairly local. If something ends up being wrong and we have to backpedal, we'll, we'll just do it again. I wonder if it has anything to do with the audience, the Etsy audience being slightly more forgiving of imperfection as well. When Apple comes out with something that's buggy, they get really hammered for it. Oh, absolutely. Whereas with Etsy, I would think that if the buttonhole wasn't exactly right on the handmade shirt that I just ordered, I would expect that that would be intended. (laughs) Well, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I think there's an expectation of things being more lovingly flawed. Sure. Yeah. yeah. We make design choices that are are intentionally like that sometimes. Uh, But we don't do those in something like UI design in the product. So you have different ways of approaching different things. Like that would just be inappropriate there. You know, we really try to make things simple, easy, fast, seamless, trustworthy. Like I would never, you know, you're going through a payment process of entering your credit card information. The standards are very, very high there. You know, we don't mess around with that stuff. Well, speaking of UI, how do you feel that e-commerce has impacted the line between creator and consumer? For some set of people, it's made it clear that it's possible they can be both. Mm-hmm. For the people who are already predisposed to be both, it's just made it easier. It's just been more empowering. That I mean, it really is incredible yeah. that you could make something and sell it on a site that does all of the selling, so to speak, for you. Sure. There's two things that come together there. So there's the site, there's the technology, the sort of platform, the software and tooling part, plus the community of people who are there already, right? So there's an audience plus tools is if that audience is the right match for you, more powerful than just tools. And that, I think, is where not e-commerce by itself, but e-commerce plus the general sort of social nature of the web is very, very powerful. I understand that you feel very strongly that designers should be able now to build what they design. Yep. Why so? From my own personal experience, I think that the end result is better. You end up with a better final product and... There's a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction with the people who work that way that makes for a great team environment. And I believe that it creates more empathy and better communication with the other people you have to work with when you're making things. I recently interviewed Karim Rashid for a book that I wrote, and he stated that we should tell young designers not to worry about what they're going to do with their design careers They should start their own brands. Designers should create their own brands that can change the world. And it feels to me like Etsy is doing that one day at Mm. a time, which is, is really wonderful and noble in so many ways. The last question that I want to ask you is a question that is coming via Scott Stowell. I was with Scott Stowell last night, the designer and founder at Open, He's a colleague of Emily Oberman's, and Emily Oberman was one of the co-founders of Number 17. She was doing a lecture last night with Bill Mogridge about her new appointment at Pentagram, and we ended up talking about you. And Scott asked me to ask you if you still use that rubber stamp to mark every piece of paper that you use. (laughs) Wow. That is really (laughs) So not only do I want to know the answer, but I want to know what he's talking about. (laughs) First, it's awesomely telling that Scott would ask this question. (laughs) Um, I basically project managed everything I did. 
it was this red office stamp. And when it would, it was those self-inking kind it would run out, I'd get another one. So I had this really simple stamp that had a blank for a project number, a date, a little note. And I would stamp every page of my sketchbook where I would move to new, move to new things. And I would number it along with the project number or job number I had for everything I was doing. I would make up project numbers for like things at home, like oh, organize the living room. I or love whatever. That and I'd make, you. I'd make sketches and then I'd be able to go back and find the stuff. Um, I don't use it anymore because I've tried to dematerialize my process as much as possible. Okay. Um, so I don't have a lot of paper that I need to keep track of that same way. Well, based on what you've just shared with us, I think that you need to sell that rubber stamp on Etsy, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Randy Jahan, thank you so much for being on Design Matters. To learn more about Randy, visit randyjhunt.com or look for him on etsy.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Randy Ortica and research by Jeff Close and Lisa Graham. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.